all of us, for the, our need to be forgiven of our real objective guilt that we feel subjectively, our need to be forgiven of that guilt by a real forgiveness, being, being able to, to, to be rid of that, that guilt, is the most profound human need that there is. And it crosses all lines, all boundaries, all barriers. None of us, none of us are above or beyond uh, this need. It's why. It's, it's, it's what keeps us awake. It's the, it's the memories of the things that we have done. What keeps us awake in the middle of the night, our guilt. It's the things that we long for distraction from and relief from in the middle of the day. Our guilt. What do we do with our guilt? We've been uh, camping out on this topic of forgiveness over these last several weeks. Back in the series through Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 18, it's a predominant theme. We've been talking about that. Um, for instance, some, some things along those lines of uh, what is forgiveness? Why is it necessary? What does it look like? There's one more thing. And it's for that reason we're pulling out of Matthew 18 because that passage really does not address that, and it just seems appropriate as long as we've been soaking on that topic just to spend a few minutes this week contemplating this question. Uh, and that is not just what is it and what does it look like and why is it necessary, but what does it mean? And by that I don't mean what does it mean to forgive. I mean what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to actually be forgiven? Because if this is true, we really need to grapple with that question. If, in fact, it's true that we can forgive only to the extent that we know ourselves to be forgiven, then we really need to grapple with the degree to which we've been forgiven. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a scripture, it's a sound biblical, deeply rooted principle. We can only forgive to the extent we know we've been forgiven. That begs the question, to what degree have we been forgiven? Which then takes us to our text this morning. No, it's not Matthew 18. It's Leviticus 16. So, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Okay? In some ways, Leviticus, some commentaries will tell you, is something like part two of the book of, of Exodus, and there's probably a lot of truth to that. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, we're in chapter 16. This is in the institution of what's referred to as the Day of Atonement. Uh, we're going to talk about that here for the next few minutes. Leviticus 16, and we're not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to hit some high points, uh, starting in verses 1 through 10 and then skipping over to verses 20 through 22. Uh, so verses 1 through 10 and verses 20 through 22, honing in on this question of the scapegoat, just as a, as a, uh, give a spoiler there. And also when we get to verses uh, 20 through 22, and I believe yeah, it's also in the 1 through 10 as well, you'll hear mention of a goat uh, and being associated with Azazel. That's the literal Hebrew word, we understand that to be translated and understood of the concept of scapegoat. Talk about that. So when you hear me read Azazel, 
just punch in scapegoat there, okay? We're gonna I'm going to explain what that means, how all that comes together uh, after we've actually read the text, okay? So Leviticus 16, first in verses 1 through 10, skipping over 20 through 22. Hear now God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Skipping over to verses 20 to 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded, some of us are familiar with a passage from Paul's writings, a letter to Timothy where he tells us very plainly that all Scripture, not most of it, not some of it, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man, that the woman of God may be equipped, thoroughly prepared for every good work. And so we know that has to mean that without Leviticus 16, if we were to tear Leviticus out of our Bibles and never read it, we would not be equipped. We would not be prepared. We would not be competent. We would be ill-equipped. We would be incompetent for every good work. The teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness includes this text. We pray that you'd give us discerning eyes and ears to understand what, was, what did you have in mind? Why these ceremonies? Why these rites? Why these sacrifices? 
so graphic, so visual, so not just visual, but every, all the senses engaged. Why? What is that about? Who is that about? How does that connect to us today? How oh, would you help us to understand, and, and not just in the sense of ability to win a Bible trivial pursuit game, but connecting to our hearts that we indeed really would know, as we asked a little while ago, that we really would know, grapple with, and sing for coming to understand more and more what it means for us to be forgiven. We pray in your name. Amen. So a scapegoat is oftentimes defined, I'm just going to jump right in here, the scapegoat is oftentimes defined this way, as one that bears the blame for others. Okay, so one that bears the blames for others. So a, a contemporary illustration, example of this would be, and, and we see this a lot in the news, the CEO was made the scapegoat for the company's failures. All right, and so he or she is, you know, sent packing. Uh, we, know, we can trace the origin of this word, the, the scapegoat, back to William Tyndale's translation of the, in, in the English of the Bible, where he's grappling with this text, Leviticus 16, this, this Hebrew word, azazel. It, it literally means, the word that he's translating, that, that the ESV just punches out there is just, you know, and, and transliterated, but not translated. It literally means goat that goes away, or goat that is sent away. Hence, scapegoat. It's a vital term. It's a significant term. It's a beautiful term, image, both then and now. And boy, do we, all of us, in our own way, need it now here this morning. Another term that William Tyndale is credited with having coined, not just scapegoat, but atonement. And in case you're wondering, well, what does that mean? How do you break that down? Well, actually, you just break the syllables down. at one -ment. That, that's what atonement is. It's grappling with our need, our deep, profound need to be saved from our sin. Saved because of our bondage to sin, our enslavement to sin. Saved because of the relational rift that sin causes between us and God and also us and one another. Uh, saved also from the, the just wrath of God upon our sin and our rebellion, and not just that, not just that as though that was enough, but save from our, our guilt and our shame, the guilt and shame that we bear, that in his mercy and his grace through Christ has borne away. Our guilt and our shame, which takes us to the Day of Atonement. This idea of forgiveness and what it means to be forgiven by God, and, and all the imagery that you see going on here, all the symbols going on here with the Day of Atonement, it all comes together in a, in a powerful way. I, I won't say more so than anywhere else in the, in the Old Testament, but at least as much as anywhere else in the Old Testament, you see it pictured and imaged for us, forgiveness and atonement and how all that comes about graphically displayed and, and imaged for us here in Leviticus 16. Because what you have going on is this, very clearly, especially in terms of this Azazel, thing and the scapegoat. The Lord has provided his scapegoat. The Lord has provided his scapegoat that takes away our sin. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. He has provided. We have this profound need, every man, woman, and child, 
We have this profound need. Someone do something with my guilt and my shame. Wash me clean. And the Lord shows us in this ceremony that he has provided a scapegoat, his own, that we, that our sins would be taken away. Ours is simply to look to him. Ours is simply to lay hold of him, that we would be forgiven. That's it. He has provided. Ours is simply to look to him, to lay hold of what he's done. Now, we're going to look at the scapegoat in kind of an ascending order, an increasing, I don't know, levels of, of understanding, of clarity, I guess. It's there in your outline, three basic points. We're first going to just look at Leviticus 16. I don't have but so much time this morning. We're just going to have a quick pass through, but hopefully sufficient, to consider the sacrifice of the scapegoat. That's the first thing. The second thing is to look at the uh, promise of the scapegoat and how you see this, this, uh, this theme of this need for our sin to be removed and dealt with all through the Old Testament. I'm going to show you some passages there as well. And then finally, the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. What was that about? Or if I can just spoiler alert, who? Who is that ultimately about the scapegoat? Okay, so three points. The sacrifice itself the promise, and the fulfillment, all of that. Okay, so let's go. The procedure, uh, the, the, the sacrifice, the procedure, what's going on here, just the order of events. So again, this is the Day of Atonement in the uh, ceremonies, in the sacrificial rites that the Lord, I will say, graciously, we need to understand that, graciously provides for his people in that era. In the course of that, in the course of the year, it reaches its climax with the Day of Atonement. Okay? And that's what we're reading about here. In part, it's a lot of different things. Again, we could go weeks talking about just this chapter. But in the, in the midst of all of that, you have these, we read it, these two goats. And lots are cast over them, the two goats. And one is appointed for one thing, and one is appointed for another. Goat number one is killed. And his blood is sprinkled there upon the, the altar, not the altar, we'll refer later, the, the mercy seat, there within the holy of holies, or the most holy place. That is to say, literally, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God, in some spectacular way, is present. More so than in any other place, he is present upon the mercy seat, upon the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, get the imagery just with this. The blood is put between the law of God and the sin of the people. In the sprinkling of the blood upon the, the mercy seat itself and in front of the mercy seat, the blood is put between the law and the sins of the people, and that carries on. Blood is sprinkled upon uh, the incense altar and the, the, broader, the, the larger altar there in the tabernacle complex, the idea being that the sins of the people need to be purged in this annual, this annual ceremony that God could dwell in their midst. Okay, and that's what this was meant to, to accomplish and point towards, this, this cleansing, this purging. Okay, that's the first goat. That's the first goat. Then there's the second goat. This goat is not killed outright. This goat, in this case, the high priest lays his hands upon the head of the goat, and the sins of the people are confessed in that action. And then that goat is led away out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. 
What is all this meant to, to image? What is all this meant to illustrate? What is all this meant to symbolize? Okay, let's look at the goats individually. The first goat. This goat that's put to death is, is, is um, meant to, to picture, to image, to point towards the need that we have for God's work of, heavy theological term, hang on, God's work of propitiation, the removal of his wrath. The removal of his wrath in the slaughter of this first goat. Okay? It's, it's poured out on this one in our stead as a substitute, as a sub, an innocent victim standing in the place of the people. Okay? That's what you have there, the first goat, Wrath removed in the act of propitiation. Second goat, not wrath removed, sin removed. Not God's work of propitiation, but God's work of, another term, expiation. And the one leads to the other. Because of the one, the other is possible. Because God's wrath has been removed, because it's been poured out in that sense upon the goat, now it is, our sin is removed as a consequence of, of that. A transfer, the transfer of the people's sin upon this second goat, led away, sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen. It's a sense of finality. Bridge burned, never to be seen again. The sin of the people. If you put it this way, the first goat pictures and images the means of our forgiveness, the way we can be forgiven. The second goat pictures and images the result of that, the sweet, beautiful consequence of that. Our sin is removed. The goat is out of the camp. Out of the camp. Once you see that goes crest the hill, never to be seen again. It's gone. It's done. It's dealt with. And note this. All this is initiated by God. He wants his people to know. He wants his people to feel this, sense this, with all the senses, to, to grapple with this, to, to be uh, gripped by this. At least these things, the reality of sin and its danger, to be sure, but also the possibility of the hope of being cleansed of our sin. He wants us to know that. He wants us to, to feel that, to grapple with that, both our, our need and his promise to deal with the need. And the need and the promise is not something just for the ancient people of Israel, but our need to know our, our need to know our need and the God's promise to meet that need is just as true today as it was then. God, again, back to what we said at the beginning, God has provided his scapegoat to take away our sin. Ours is but to lay hold of him, to look to him that we would then be forgiven. Okay, that takes us to this next point, this, the second point. I'm just going to fly through this. I'm going to read five texts. You can see it there, the subpoints of that. Uh, main point number two, the promise of the scapegoat, how you see this theme all through the Old Testament of, oh, that he would deal with our sins in this way. And this this multifaceted need that we have, multiple images. And I'm not going to comment on these texts. I'm just going to let them stand, let them speak for themselves. So we've got five for Psalm 103. Psalm 103, beautifully stated here. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. We see how our sins are removed. 
For as high, we read this last week, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Skipping over a few uh, psalms to the right, Psalm 130, similar idea, slightly different images. Psalm 130, verses 3 to 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So our sins removed, our sins unmarked, our sins put away. Isaiah 38, skipping over a few books to the right. Isaiah 38, verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Our sins removed, our sins unmarked, our sins put away, our sins not remembered. This is one we looked at a little bit last week. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And lastly, Micah 7. This is heading a bit far into the Old Testament. Uh, Micah chapter 7. Towards the end of Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, this again, this is one we looked at last week. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Well, again, you get this idea of God's eagerness to put our sins away, and his eagerness that his people would know that it, through what he has provided, the ultimate scapegoat, indeed our sins have been put away. They have been removed, unmarked, put away, not remembered, disposed. Corrie Ten Boom, in, in many of her uh, talks through the years, and many of her writings, delighted to, to hearken back to this uh, text there from Micah 7, and she would put it this way, regarding when, when God takes our sins and throws them overboard into the, depth, the, the depths of the sea, this is what she would say time and again. Then God put up a sign saying, no fishing allowed. Which is a beautiful picture. She's, she was dead on right. It's a beautiful picture of our need to, to not go dredging it up. Why? The Lord is not. Why are we? Why are we allowing others to do that? Why are we? Why are we letting Satan do that? Why are we? They've been dealt with. There's no need to dredge it up. No fishing allowed. Why live in that vague sense of guilt? When the guilt has been dealt with, the guilt has been confessed, there's been repentance, there's been remorse, where necessary there's been restitution, all of that, and he's dealt with it in full on the cross. Why? Why are we dredging it up? There's the sign. No fishing allowed. The Lord has provided for us his scapegoat that we might be, then be forgiven. Ours is but to look to him, to lay hold of him. Last thing. 
the fulfillment of the scapegoat. Israel, the people of Israel knew very well, and we know full well, that goats are not going to do it. I mean, just a goat, a farm animal, is not going to fix this. It never was intended to. It was meant to point towards something, to picture something, to image something, that which would be accomplished later on by the great scapegoat, the one who truly, and the only one who could truly, bear our sins away. Go to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the larger letters that you have there. Uh, Hebrews, it's, it's after, well, Paul's letters that you have in uh, Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and the Thessalonian letters and and the books, to, the letters to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, you hit Hebrews, and it's before James. Hebrews, now we really would do well to read all of chapters 9 through 11. Sorry, don't have time. Um, there's one paragraph, though, that's helpful to look at in chapter 9. Uh, it's Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28, not to take anything away from the rest of that, that section. But I just want to read this, and, and you'll see here, I think you'll, you'll hear here, what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is, is to capture something of this contrast and comparison between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle, what the sacrifices were meant to image and picture, and what the sacrifice Jesus himself has accomplished once for all, finally and fully so. Okay, so 9.23 to 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. This is how this was accomplished. And the scriptures speak of this again and again and again in language, hearkening back to these Levitical sacrifices going back for, for centuries at that point. And with the accomplishment of this great work, Jesus holds forth a promise. The scapegoat is holding forth a promise to us today. In 1 John 1, if you just want to turn a few books to the right, 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise that is held forth. What was accomplished by Jesus can be appropriated by his people. We can lay hold of it. It can be ours, communicated, if, if you will. To us, how so? Two things, and it's alluded to already in, in the book of, in Hebrews and here in John, and time and again through the scriptures. First, humility. This is how we appropriate. This is how what, what Jesus has accomplished can be ours. We begin with humility, recognizing our need for what he has done. 
the reality of our guilt and our sin. Humility. And coupled with that, faith, trust, reliance upon his finished work, nothing left to be added to it. Nothing possibly could be added to it because he's done it all. It's done it all. And you see an image there with those two goats, the first and the second. The one sacrificed and the one led away into the wilderness, trusting his finished work, having borne our sin, our guilt, and our shame, and bearing it away to a place never to be seen again. That's how what he has, can, has accomplished can be appropriate, can be laid hold of us here. And let me just add this. That's not a once-for-all thing. This is not something that you do when you first come to Christ. This is something that we are called to and must do day after day after day, throughout the day, minute by minute, hour by hour, humble, trusting faith in the finished work of Jesus for us every day, all through the day. It's incumbent upon us. It's what all this is meant to point towards. Yes, objectively, that sacrifice has been has taken in place. The sin has been dealt with in full. But if we are sub- subjectively to, to be free and to know any sense of joy in that, we have to lay hold of that and look to him every day. Every day. That's not a mind game. That's not pretending as though, oh, I didn't sin. No, 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 no. It is, it is far from dishonest and a pretend game. It is honest and is dealing with reality. The reality that he has dealt with it. And the reality that it is done. And it is finished. And the sin and the shame has been borne by another. Never to be seen again. The Lord in his mercy has provided for us his scapegoat. That our sins could be dealt with. Ours is but to lay hold of him, to look to him. In with this, this little headline I came across this past week, recent, I think it was just in the news just a few weeks ago. In Minersville, Pennsylvania, oh, here's the headline, sorry. Uh, feeling guilty, man pays 44-year-old parking ticket. In Minersville, Pennsylvania, a man cleared his conscience by paying a 44-year-old parking ticket. The Minersville Police Department received a letter last week with $5 and a note inside. The return address was, Feeling Guilty, Wayward Road, Anytown, California. Police Chief Michael Combs told local news the note said, Dear PD, I've been carrying this ticket around for 40 plus years, always intending to pay. Forgive me if I don't give you my info. With respect, Dave. The fine for the 1974 parking ticket in eastern Pennsylvania town, this town, was $2, but the person added $3 for interest. The same today would be $20. Okay, somewhat humorous. I bring it up just to point towards this visceral, crazy, in some cases, sense, but real, of our guilt. I'm just looping back to where we started. What do we do with our guilt. In the church, here's how we usually deal with it. Try harder. Be more committed. 
do better, do more. And it's killing us. The culture around us has another solution. And that is, let's just deny that there's any objective right and wrong and therein suppress the concept that we've violated that because it's not there, so there's no sin or guilt to deal with. Well, that's not working very well either. In fact, there are a lot of uh, writers who are, are speaking about this right now, secular and Christian both, are using this expression, this term, the strange persistence of guilt. It's like we're haunted. We have this sense that we've done wrong. Something's wrong, we've done wrong, we are wrong. But because we have denied the reality of a moral law and a moral law giver, but we have this guilt and we don't know what to do, we've got nowhere to go with it. No one to deal with it. And so we're just haunted, the strange persistence of guilt. Oh, wait, we, but we do have somewhere to go with it. To the one that the ancient ceremonies pointed to Jesus, the one true scapegoat, the one to whom the bread and the cup take us and capture so beautifully. Before we go there, let's pray. Oh, Lord, that we would know that in Christ, as we look to you, as we lay hold of you, your finished work, we are forgiven. Justice has been done. Our sin has been removed. It need never be brought up because you're not. Never held against us. No grudges, no bitterness. We are free, the source of our deepest joy. But... As we started at the, at, at the beginning, and as we've been talking about these last few weeks, we are free so as to be so as to free, be freed to forgive. Oh, if it be true that we can forgive only to the extent that we have been forgiven, then please, oh Jesus, show us how we've been forgiven. Show us how it's, it's captured in these Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices, what you wanted us from the start to see and understand, what you'd come to do and accomplish. Oh, that we then would be conduits of such mercy and forgiveness to others, channels of that. In awe and wonder that you would forgive us as you have, and therein empowering us to do that in the lives of the people around us. I pray for you in this Pray for this in your name. Amen. Let me ask my fellow elders if you would join me up front here as we're shifting.